Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild Card Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. Welcome to Industry Focus. I'm Nick Seipel. Texas is dominating the energy world this week with a generational winter storm leaving millions without power. Motley Fool contributor Jason Hall joins me to break down what's going on with these Texas blackouts and its broader implications. Jason, welcome back on the podcast. Hey, Nick. Good good to be on. I, I got a brother in Texas. He's in San Antonio, so he's pretty far south. But yeah, he's been in Texas on and off since 89. He's never seen. He's ne- This is, yeah, this is tough. Yeah, I, I can't imagine. So, yeah, snow in Texas in general, crazy. Snow to the extent that it's shutting down. The power grid is wild. I think this continues. You know, this past year, you want to look back, uh, you know, March of last year was really when this whole pandemic stuff started. We've had crazy hurricane season. We went into the, the Greek alphabet. Now we have this uh, a blackout in Texas. It's, it's really been a, a crazy year. What is going on in Texas right now? Like, what, like, what fundamentally, what is happening? <laughs> Every, everything's frozen. I mean, I think that's really about it's. I think that's the biggest issue, right? It's they get cold weather in in, in Texas, especially north. You know, the further north you move, but it's such a sustained period of below freezing, single digit even weather that so much of the infrastructure is just frozen, right? It's impacted their ability to get gas through the pipelines to the gas plants. I think one thing that's like leading the headlines is these frozen wind turbines, right? And a lot of fingers are getting pointed at, at wind and other and renewables as being the cause of this. And that's, you know, that's a little inaccurate. We'll talk about it, but it's it's definitely kind of those, you know, hundred year event scale kind of things. Right. It's this this the type of thing where, yeah, certainly there there was some some wind production um, impacted, frozen uh, by these temperatures, but that alone uh, wasn't what did it. It was lots of these factors all coinciding at once. Pipelines frozen shut. Even had a, a nuclear plant with some some freezing of water involved in. It was in a its frozen facility. sensor that shut down that facility. Yeah, right. So so yes, yeah, so you all all these things frozen shut. I think one thing that's that's remarkable is. You can winterize these facilities to, to be prepared uh, for these types of, of events. Texas had had a similar blackout in the past, not a multi-day blackout as we've seen uh, this past week, but in 2011, faced rolling blackouts due to a winter freeze. Uh, the federal uh, regulators actually advised um, the Texas the Texas grid operators uh, to, to winterize its grid to prevent further problems. Those steps weren't necessarily uh, taken, and now now we are. Uh, where we're at today, I, I, when you when you think about that, if you're someone in Texas and you said, "Hey, we didn't winterize," like, what explanation do we have for those folks? So a couple things, right? This is you know you start looking at the at the so you know there's always disaster planning, and I think it's ARCOT, right? That's the that's the Texas. Electric Reliability Council of Texas. I'm sure lots of people have know what that means today. I did not. I did not know what that organization was before this week. Elon Musk went so far as to call them out in a tweet, saying they're not living up to the R in the name, which is the reliability. Uh, of course, uh, Musk has relo- relocated his residency to Texas, and there's there's plans for the company involving the state. Um, it's it's tough, right? Because you know you have disaster planning. But Nikki and I were talking offline about philosophically, 
where do you draw the line, right, between the, the, the capital investments that you want to spend and the, and the costs for planning for something that most people will never experience in their lifetime? And, you know, there's a, uh, just like there's this crazy confluence of things that have happened, right? So one of the things that um, uh, a professor who covers, um, who, who covers energy and also looks at, like, environmental aspects, uh, meteorological, pointed out that one of the things that was happening is – ERCOT allowed some of these power producers to bring facilities down for maintenance to prepare for the summer peak when they had some line of sights and forecasts that were close enough to be relatively predicted that there could be risk to the grid of, of, of some outages. So, so there's like, if you go through it, there's like, it seems like there was just systemic things, like lots of little things, right? Almost death by a million paper cuts, so to speak. Do you think that's a good way to think about this? Yeah, I think so. So part of it is, you know, there were, there were advisories for, you know, if you're if you're a, a a grid operator, you should you should winterize, but these weren't mandatory. And then you layer on, if you're a grid operator, do I want to make this investment in winterization when this is an event that you know may not happen at least to this scale in in decades or ever? Um, if you are someone who is a who is a customer of that grid operator, do I want to pay higher effective rates because of that investment to ensure against uh, something that that is unlikely to happen? It's very easy to look back with 2020 hindsight and say, yeah, of course they they should have winterized. But when you're making that decision, obviously you don't have the full scale of how the probabilities um, are going to fall out. That said, we have had these, these probabilities fall out this way. We have had a, a historic blackout in Texas. So lots of people are, are upset. How do you think this changes the regulatory environment for utilities going forward? This this Again, you're in California. There were some impacts from, from utility underinvestment there as well. Yeah, that's. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, Nick. So I, I live in Southern California, and it, it's it dominated the news the past, you know, really two or three summers. The the rolling blackouts throughout the state, the wildfires, uh, PG and E went bankrupt, right? Because went through bankruptcy because of uh, they were found liable for for a tremendous amount of 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 you know billions and billions of dollars in damage from fires because. Their transmission lines were not properly maintained, and it's, you know, I think I want to be careful here and, and and kind of think about this from a couple perspectives. So, thinking about as a utility investor, utility companies that are not publicly that are publicly traded, right? They're private companies that we own shares in. They have two mandates, right? They have a mandate to provide power at a regulated cost, right? And they have a mandate to return to investors, right? These are dividend investments, return a portion of those cash flows to investors. So there's significant tension because to a certain extent, there's almost there's almost fighting. You, you have kind of almost really it's kind of a conflict of interest, right? And that's where the regulators are supposed to come in is to make sure that, the, that these businesses are meeting their obligations to their customers, and then whatever's left over can go to the owners, right? So the, the question becomes, as an investor, do I, do I need to reevaluate the way I'm thinking about the extremes of weather, right? Because you have climate and then you have weather, right? So climate change is happening. And a lot of people, the connotation we hear is global warming, right? Well, if global warming is a real thing, what the heck's happening in Texas, right? And it's actually kind of part and parcel that there are more extreme weather events. Think about the hurricane season. We talked about how much longer it's become, how many more 
you know, large storms we're getting. And I think investors just need to be a little more cautious about what's the worst case scenario you want to think about if you're investing in any utility that's in an affected area. Because at the end of the day, these are supposed to be safe, stable investments that can generate some sort of meaningful rate of return and generate income, right? Yeah, yeah, certainly. So you had some of these utilities that were forced to buy power on the spot market at, at you know prevailing prices, which were heavily inflated, and then then deliver power to customers at you know the, those lower regulated rates. So some of those utilities caught in those positions. Another thing to think about, Jason, that I've thought about is you talk about utilities are regulated. There are, are certain requirements around you know the investments they need to make and those sorts of things. If if there is some shift coming out of this when you look at what's happened with PG&E and the goings on in Texas that ups the requirements of capital that these these companies have to put in to, to insure against these types of events. There, there is a story you could tell that, that future returns for, for holders of those utilities could go down. Just capital requirements go up, capital that's available to go to shareholders goes down. We'll have to see uh, uh, what happens, but I think there's going to be some, some wide-ranging implications. I think it's important to note uh, that, that power is starting to come back um, in Texas this morning. I think they were down to about half a million uh, people without power. Um, another one of these issues we talked about earlier, Jason, um, kind of looking out longer term, is, is the role of renewable. So renewable have been very kind of politicized in this conversation. Very, many people were, were quick to come out and say renewables are, are responsible for this. Do, do you think this impacts the, the appetite for folks to, to want to have you renewables as part of their grid in a meaningful way uh, going forward? I don't expect it will. I think it's important to remember that whenever there's any sort of natural disaster or large-scale event like this, there's always immediate political posturing. You know, it's it always happens, right? It's 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 because this is this is just part of our our political commentary, um, and and you know, politicians are go- are going to look for ways to position themselves to leverage this event in some sort of way. Um, so we saw that happen very very quickly in Texas. Uh, particularly uh, with a number of, of folks kind of coming out and blaming, again, blaming um, wind turbines as, as being as being the cause of this problem, blaming federal subsidies that have shifted the amount of renewables in Texas and, you know, kind of push, maybe push natural gas out. And, and, and it's a, frankly, it's a little bit inaccurate because if you look at ERCOT's planning, there, there were the, 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 the expectation for, wind particularly this is the big one right because it's winter and some and solar really wasn't expected to be a, a major source but wind was expected to be a very very small portion of power production and again at the end of the day this is this is this is like an entire infrastructure you know thing that that, that kind of took a hit so here's my expectation right and i think it's really important as an investor to try to step back and be as objective as you can wherever you fall on government subsidies for renewables, stance on any of the political stuff. This is where you really have to gut check and, and think about it. And I think what we might see is we might see some, we're going to see continued political posturing, right? That's going to be, that's going to drive a lot of the headlines, but I don't think it's going to change any of the incentives. I don't think it's going to change any of the regulations. Texas still has two things very much in its favor. A lot of sun <laughs> for a lot of the year, and a lot of wind for a lot of the year. It's kind of part of that, you know, you get up into the panhandle and, and the western side of the, the state, and it falls in what they call the Saudi Arabia of wind, which is that middle of that Midwestern corridor of the United States that has some of the most consistent, predictable wind output in the world. And here's the other part, too. 
wind and solar technology, as much as subsidies have played a role and will continue to play a role, the levelized costs of production have continued to fall because the technology just continues to get better and better and better every year. I, I would say this. I think if investors were looking for maybe one kind of, hey, here's a good place to look, because I think it, it's something that more utilities are going to look at as well, is you start thinking about the independent power producers, right? So you think about Brookfield Renewable, um, ticker BEP uh, and BEPC. You think about Atlantica Sustainable Infrastructure, ticker AY. That they focus on renewables. There's some others that are independent power producers. Next Era Energy Partners, NEP, um, that they also have some gas production. So I think what we're going to see potentially is more and more utilities are going to just kind of, they're going to operate the infrastructure and they're going to connect to the ratepayers, and they're going to rely more and more on independent power producers to provide them with power because they're going to need it, right? They're going to need to have that flex. And plus it means less capital investments for them to make, which means lower risk, less liabilities on their balance sheet. Yeah, so so I, I agree with you as far as kind of the role of, of renewable going forward. We'll have to see what happens from a regulatory point of view, what, what changes are made uh, for these companies uh, to see what happens to utilities. There are some other impacts outside of the utility space directly that I, I think are worth talking about as well. Um, one of those is just in construction. So, so one of the stats that I pulled, so Austin Water uh, put out a statement. So this is the, the water utility for Austin, Texas, um, to, to its customers saying they had many, quote, many thousands of residential pipe bursts, many dozens of, of water main breaks. The first thing I think about is just, we've got to replace all that, right? If there's been many thousands of, of residential pipe bursts, that means many thousands of homes and apartments uh, that have significant damage need to be torn out, replaced, um, or, or what have you. How should we be thinking about the read-through in just construction demand, demand for, for lumber, those sorts of things. So again, I think this is one that's mostly going to be kind of an on-the-ground localized thing. But I can tell you this, if I'm a home builder operating in Texas, and that's a key market, so like LGI Homes, ticker LGIH, uh, is, is a big one. Um, I think Green Brick um, also has some some operations in Texas. And this, again, these are smaller operators. The, I mean, their labor costs just went up. 10 to 20% or maybe more uh, for, for a substantial part of at least the spring, the spring season, because there's just a whole lot of renovation work that's going to need to be done, right? You think about the burst pipes inside houses, um, uh, other, other damage that, that you think, then you start talking about, you know, again, I th this is where it's easy to forget. Oh, by the way, we're still in the midst of a global pandemic. Think about all of those unoccupied commercial spaces that nobody thought about. And the power went out, and the heating went out, and all the the pipes froze in those buildings, right? So the implications could be pretty enormous in terms of construction costs, and the implications I think are pretty are pretty noteworthy for for home again home builders. I think as an investor, those are the companies I think are going to bear some of the implications of of kind of maybe headwinds for that. Um, if I'm Home Depot or Lowe's, you know, I'm rubbing my hands together right now because these companies, it's it's going to be a benefit for them. But it's temporary, right? There's nothing durable that's coming out of this that I think is really creating an opportunistic, you know, hey, this I should I should invest X here because it's it's something that's durable. I don't think that's the case. 
Yeah, yeah. So I, I think certainly, you know, if you're someone who's going out to, to buy a home today or wants to build a new home today, your construction is going to be significantly more uh, more expensive. So it's going to increase some of those costs in a time where there really has been just significantly historic amounts of, of demand um, for housing. You layer on top, there was already elevated uh, uh, cost for construction materials because of what I, said, what I said earlier, I believe, about we went into the Greek alphabet in hurricanes. So this is already an environment so where there's where there's elevated demand uh, for some of these materials. So I think you can expect to see some of these commodity prices go up along those same lines. Oil prices are, are moving up in a significant way. We've seen U.S. oil output down 4 million barrels per day, largest ever decline um, in the U.S., down 40 percent um, overall. How should we be thinking about this impact in the, in the oil and gas market? Lots of lots of wells frozen in and, and aren't, maybe might not be producing uh, soon. Yeah, it's a couple things, right? So, you know, on the commodity side, yeah, lumber's already at all-time prices, so the home builders are going to continue to take a take a beating there. In addition to the labor costs, and then you start looking at oil. And so here's the good thing, right? So there, there's, in terms of the implications broadly, there's a lot of oil in a lot of places around the world that can be brought online to soak up this this that can help meet the the global demand, right? Because global demand is actually on the on the rise as as you know. The vaccines are starting to be rolled out. Some areas are able to start opening up economically. Um, it's it's bad for you know if you're if you're like some of the who's some of the big ones in Texas right now. So uh, uh, Oxy right there they've they've had some force majeure. Who else has had some? Yeah, so Chevron has, Chevron. has had some as well. Uh, yep. Plains All American Pipeline because of issues with with their power supply. Lots of folks yep. um, being impacted. Was it like four uh, million it, barrels a day? I think that's 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 knocked back. That's like a th- 40 that's like 40 percent of of u.s oil output right that's that's offline i mean that's right. that's four percent of, glo- of of global consumption when we're normalized right obviously obviously demand down somewhat um because of the pandemic but so you have some read through uh, impacts in oil and gas again this is another one of these things that i, I think is going to be a bit of an air bubble um one interesting thing you had texas ban natural gas exports from the state through february 21st i think it was structured as like a first right of refusal for texas that's a that's a a constitutional interstate commerce uh, uh, loophole there um but yeah yeah you have states kind of circling the wagons around the, around their energy uh, energy supplies with, with this texas uh, uh, thing so impacts there probably won't be uh incredibly long lasting but in the near term there are there are some folks um turning on uh, supplies that are that are Doing quite well. I mean, I saw one stat with uh, with spot prices uh, for for natural gas in Oklahoma up a thousand up to over a thousand dollars per million uh, British thermal units, which is huge, huge, massive amount. Um, well, cons- thing- considering ahead, that just- three is a, a good price, a thousand is yeah. So again, context: three is a good price. A <laughs> thousand is not a good price. Yeah. So so one of the things that I. I we were talking about before the show, Jason, and this isn't like an absolute answer because we're talking about inflation and macro stuff that it, that is it maybe a, a little mushy. But you're going to see lots of people come out and say, "Listen, you know, um, lumber prices, all-time highs, oil and gas shooting up to to crazy highs. I'm sure copper, other types of construction materials are going to be up, and they're going to point to that and say, "Listen, guys, inflation is going through the roof. We've been calling for inflation for years. The Fed overshot on their on their interest rates. We need to watch out for inflation. What would What's your response to that? Thoughts on, on those types of sentiments? Yeah, I, I think I think we're gonna we're gonna see some sort of, uh, you know, it, this is gonna reflect it's gonna be reflected in the inflation numbers to some extent for probably a quarter, but again, this is Texas. This isn't the yeah Texas is one of the largest states. Texas drives 
economically um, uh, costs a lot. But again, I don't think this is going to be meaningful or durable. So I don't think this is the kind of thing that you think about as true inflation. Um, because again, it's, it's just kind of a blip on the radar. Um, I mean, think about hurricane season in, in Florida, for example, right? We see, uh, we don't, we don't, that's another thing I think is important. We don't fully know yet how disastrous it's going to be in terms of costs. Uh, how much is it really going to affect lumber costs? How much is it going to affect some of those other materials um, in a meaningful way? Because there's going to be a big volume of sales of those products in Texas that's going to drive it, right? So I think the bigger impact is definitely going to be oil and gas, right? We're going to see maybe somewhat of a sustained in, in, increased cost. But the flip side of that is as much as Texas is really important for oil and gas, there's a lot of gas coming out of Wyoming. Wyoming has some pretty extreme weather. They're built to, 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 to deal with winter. You, you, got, you still got you know, the Dakotas that produce a lot of gas and a lot of oil. And you mentioned Saudi Arabia for, for oil, Russia as well. They can lever up. They can meet that demand relatively quickly. So I don't, I don't think the implications are necessarily as, as big as we thought. And again, I don't see any durable upside for anybody as, oh, okay, let's, let's go invest in, in um, continental resources or you know, something like that. I just don't see somebody that's not Texas-based as being a big sustained winner from this. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So just to maybe underline on the, the, those natural gas prices, very, very localized because of the, the dislocation in the market, this huge spike in demand. Like you're not going to be able to realize those on, on, on a global basis. And to the extent you are, you're not going to be able to realize it for any period, uh, extended period, because people are smart and they like to make money and they're going to compete that away and get the supplies on to, to, to meet demand. Um, so we've talked a lot about, you know, there are going to be some impacts, I think, you know, over the next six months and maybe maybe construction materials, oil and gas as this air pocket plays out. We'll see what happens on, on a regulatory basis. Um, this story is dominating the news this week. When we come back, Jason, six months from now and we're talking on this podcast, what aspects of this story do you think are, are going to still be relevant? We'll still be paying attention to uh, six months from now. If there's anything, maybe the re regulatory implications. I think that's one thing to consider for utilities. Right, there could be there could be additional costs, additional burdens put on utility uh, countries or companies in in multiple areas because it's possible that we see other states say we have to act. You know, we have to act while there's political will to make sure this doesn't happen here. Right. So I think I think there are some potential implications there. As an investor, I think uh, that was focused on. Uh, utilities looking at them as safe investments with that kind of that lower that that higher floor. I, I think I would want to reevaluate where those investors, where those companies are operating, and if they have higher regulatory risk than maybe I was I was factoring in that could affect the income they generate for me. I think that's one thing I would consider. But I think most of the impacts are going to be sadly they're going to be you know the human toll in the areas um, that that are affected, the people that are affected. They're, People that are fighting their insurance company to get enough money to fix the pipes that have burst and ruined their entire home. Uh, the insurers, right? We talked about that. You think about you know companies like Berkshire Hathaway that have these massive reinsurance operations. Uh, you think about the the property and casualty insurers that that operate in Texas. I would I would reevaluate those companies and, and make sure that I own ones that have strong balance sheets that have good reinsurance in place to protect them. Um, so I think those are investor implications. But I think in general, six months from now, it's sadly, it's just going to be the 
uh, the people the people of Texas that are still trying to recover. Yeah. Big takeaway for me is things that have never happened before happen all the time. All the time. This is an example. Uh, the st- lots of things we've seen in the past year is an example. You're going to see lots of things like this as an investor. Be prepared for them. Don't be surprised. Um, and we'll talk about them as they happen. Jason, thank you for joining me on the podcast as always. This was great. I'm, I'm, I'm glad we could pivot to talk about something timely like this uh, to our, our listeners in Texas, anybody that's affected by this, we're thinking about you guys. Like I said, I have a brother in San Antonio. Luckily, they're far enough south that they haven't been really harmed, but they've had you know, a few inches of snow and still having some cold weather. So we're thinking about you guys and uh, just wish everybody to be safe and careful out there. Yeah, all the best wishes uh, uh, from all of us at The Fool. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks discussed so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear thanks to tim sparks for mixing the show for jason hall i'm nick seipel thanks for listening and fool on